0: Welcome back to Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Ashi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-host this podcast.
1: And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. Like our guest today, I'm an MSNBC analyst and also the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience during the Watergate scandal. Um, I'm also the wearer of hashtag Jill's Pins, And today's pin in honor of our guest, Jennifer Rubin, is a group of women because there is power in that and because it relates to her book about women and their role in the resistance.
0: Often in politics, what people remember is who won. And while the quality of the candidates who wins matters, An equally as important factor is the people who help elect that candidate. We can't cover all the demographics of voters, especially in one episode, but today we want to explore the role of women in the 2020 elections and in elections going forward.
1: And we have the perfect guest today for that. She will be talking with us about all sorts of subjects. Jennifer Rubin is the author of a new book, Resistance, How Women Save Democracy from Donald Trump. And uh, I think that's going to be an important conversation. In addition to her book, Jennifer is a longtime opinion writer for the Washington Post, covering politics and policy, foreign and domestic, and providing insight into the conservative movement, which she was at least officially a part of before, the Republican Party and Democratic parties as well. She also talks about threats to Western democracies. Jennifer is, as I said, also with MSNBC, and prior to her career in journalism, she practiced labor law for several decades, an experience that informs and enriches her work today. Most recently, she wrote the book, Resistance, How Women Save Democracy, from Donald Trump. We are so glad to have you with us today, Jennifer. Thank you for being here.
2: My pleasure.
0: So those who follow politics closely probably know your views from your columns in the Washington Post or your commentary on MSNBC, um, giving insight into the news of the day. But I'd like to begin by getting to know you a little bit better. Um, You grew up in California, went to the University of California, Berkeley, uh, for both your undergrad and your law degrees. Um, You graduated first in your law class in 1986. Um, I'm wondering, did being first in your law class open doors to you that weren't open to Sandra Day O'Connor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or even Jill? um, Or was there was still gender discrimination um, back then as well?
2: You know, I was very fortunate to come through law school at a time where our class was not quite half women. Now, many law school classes mm. are more than half women, but it was fairly common. And so, as a law clerk in summer jobs and then as a baby lawyer, there were plenty of women lawyers um, at really all levels. So, uh, I walk in the footsteps of others to whom I am indebted. Um, But I think, um, you know, it was a a different experience um, had I come through even 10 years earlier.
1: Wow. Yes, I I certainly know the impact of discrimination. and I'm stunned that just, you know, uh, well, I mean, actually many decades after I graduated that it was up to 50%. My class was 5%. So it's quite a growth. Um, but another surprising thing about you is, for everybody who watches you on TV or reads your commentary, is that you were at least once officially identified as a conservative. And you have now dropped that from the description of yourself. But can you describe for our audience uh, what type of conservative you were or that you are now?
2: Yeah, Unfortunately, conservative has sort of lost all meaning. People who call themselves conservative today um, believe in violence, believe in uh, the court taking radical turns away from 50 years of precedent and the like. So I've dropped that simply because it the current meaning now has been so distorted and obscured. I don't think it's very helpful in identifying people. The way I explain it to people is that I was a conservative On issues, but more so on temperament. And by temperament, I mean, I favor incremental changes. I favor uh, trying to use the so-called laboratories of democracy, our states, um, to experiment and to try different arrangements uh, that I think civil society has a very large role to play in our um, American experience. Um, And so for those reasons, I tend to be Um, somewhat cautious and hopefully humble in my anticipation of what government can do or should do. That's not to say government doesn't have a very, very big role to play. But that we should be mindful of unintended consequences. So that was my kind of temperamental attraction. As you can see, that bears no no resemblance whatsoever to the current Republican Party, and hence my exit from the party. In terms of uh, issues, I think of myself as sort of a a classical um, 19th century liberal, um, meaning that I believed in limited government. Free trade, robust immigration, the general reliability of markets, um, in the case of the United States during the Cold War War, which I think was the formative period of my politics, and thereafter I looked for strong American leadership in the world based upon our values. And once again, you can see that most of those things do not bear any resemblance to today's Republican Party. So I think um, it is um, a quandary for many people who once thought of themselves as something they thought was conservative to now see that term used in such a bizarre way. But I think uh, for people who left the party, um, they are trying to figure out uh, what comes next. And that may be eventually forming a new party that may be finding a home um, in the center part of the uh, uh, Democratic Party. Um, Jill and I are both old enough to remember blue dog Democrats, um, that is more conservative (laughs) Democrats, primarily from the South. But I think uh, so long as this Republican Party is in such a bad state, so unhinged and operating in Way so contrary to our democratic ideals, there's no way that I could identify with them or be part of them.
1: Have you officially left the Republican Party now?
2: I have. Um, in Virginia, we didn't uh read where I was at the time, uh, I made the change. We don't register by party, so at that point, I didn't make a formal uh change, but I did write a piece in the spring of 2016 after it became very evident the Republican Party was not going to reject Donald Trump um, breaking up with the Republican Party. I basically said, we need some time apart. Um, And that time continues until today.
1: So, well, you're in good company because uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, was someone who believed in incremental change. And uh, tomorrow we'll find out what would have happened had she had her way on abortion, uh, as opposed to the not incremental change that um, Roe versus Wade made. But anyway, um, did your sort of loss of confidence in the Republican Party result from Donald Trump, or was there some other cause?
2: Well, I certainly think that um, he was the final straw. There had always been elements in the Republican Party which I and some of our fellow never Trumpers fought back against. There was a time, of course, where the Republican Party under Ronald Reagan was very pro immigration. And um, it had slowly drifted into uh, not only an anti illegal immigration, but just anti immigration stance. And that bothered me um, hugely. But I think at the point at which they embraced someone who rejects, the fundamental democratic compact that is the rule of law, the concept that no one is uh, above the law, um, the notion that uh, we have one man, one vote, and we count every vote accurately, um, and that we put aside violence and respect the democratic system. Once they threw that overboard, there's no toleration. There's no compromise. There's no policy position that I could... Uh, tolerate um, that would keep me in the party. And people often raise all sorts of um, positions that Joe Biden or Democrats are saying and say, well, do you agree with that? Do you agree with that? And the answer is no, I don't agree with everything um, that uh, various Democrats have to say. But I do agree that we only have one small D Democratic Party right now, and that is the big D Democratic Party. And so for now, I have to Make my peace with them and I offer advice, I offer uh, suggestions. um, But until the Republican Party figures itself out, there really is no hope for it.
1: I, of course, hope that you and all the other conservatives who actually believe in conservative values as you've identified them, but are willing to recognize the threat that the current Republican Party poses to democracy will join the Democratic Party, the capital D Democratic Party, which is also, as you said, the small D Democratic Party, and um, that you will soon consider yourself an actual Democrat.
0: I do have one follow-up question. What would you say to young conservatives? What do you think the party means for them right now?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, I would have them return to first principles. I would have them go back and read the Constitution, read some of the best commentary on it, like the Federalist Papers and others who have taken our history seriously, and also to inform themselves about the Civil Rights Movement and about Jim Crow, and let them reach some conclusions about what they think the American experiment is about what they think are the values that hold us together as a people. And if in looking at that, they see that we really should be the party in which all men are created equal, and women um, in which um, limited government and a uh, balance and a check among the branches of government uh, pertain, then they have to seriously consider whether the Republican Party is the place for them. And they may decide to remain independents. They may decide to join the Republican Party and fight for their positions. But I think if they are looking for the same principles that initially attracted me to the Republican Party, they're going to be bitterly disappointed because those do not appear in the uh, roster of ideas that this Republican Party um, ascribes to. And, um, you know, we are— accustomed to thinking what the current conditions are will remain for forever. And they don't. Parties come, parties go. Um, the current two parties that are the main parties have lasted for quite a while. But there's nothing that's set in stone. Certainly the Constitution doesn't mention political parties. Nothing set in stone that it's these two parties or nothing. Um, and I think if we learn something, I learned something during the Trump years, it's that we're all responsible for our democracy. Democracy is what we make of it. And if uh, the current parties are not to their liking or one party is not to their liking, there's nothing to say that it must go on for forever. And that is their only alternative.
0: Definitely. So let's transition to your newly released book, Resistance, How Women Save Democracy from Donald Trump. Um, I think it's an inspiring book for both men and women. Um, I guess just to start on the most basic level, I'm curious about how you approach the writing process for the book and how it's different from or the same as writing opinion columns.
2: Wow, that's a great question. I had been asked many times to write a book. And I didn't feel like I had something to say that was worthy of a book. Um, And that changed during the Trump years. And I felt that the story of the resistance and women's role in the resistance was so remarkable and really underreported that I wanted to tell that story. And the more I got to know women, some of whom had never been political, some of whom ran for Congress for the first time, some of whom formed new organizations, the more inspired I became. And I think you're right, Victor, that it was not simply um, an example to me of women uh, engaging or re-engaging in politics. It was an example of what participatory democracy should be about. Um, It was about women taking matters into their own hands, and in some cases, really reinventing their lives in order to become uh, political activists. It was a very, very different process than writing a column. Um, On one hand, there is some similarity. You gather facts, you talk to people, you interview people, um, and you come up with a thesis, if you will, an argument, um, and present that to your readers. But in the course of a book, you have the luxury of time and length and breadth. And so I think the ability to sit down with so many different people who live in all different parts of the country was really a remarkable experience for me. I wrote the book over about 18 months, um, sometimes racing to catch up to events and sometimes writing in real time. Um, but it really gave me perspective. Um, apart from my day-to-day work, so that I could kind of pull back and see maybe some of the broader actions and broader activities. And it also, I think, led me to be more optimistic about the fate of democracy for a number of years. I think correctly, we've been warning about attacks on democracy, the decline of democracy, illiberal forces, not only in America, but around the world. But this really gave me um, a deeper appreciation for the degree to which democracy does really hold a appeal for Americans, that it is in our political DNA uh, to a large extent, and that it mattered enough for women to change their lives, uproot their lives, um, run for political office, raise money, volunteer, um, and do all of these things that perhaps we had gotten away from doing and become very passive about. And I think it was a wake-up call to me and really an inspiration that democracy has some life in it after all. Um, it is up to us to reinvigorate it in every generation, I think.
0: For sure. I mean, we'll get into those moments later in the podcast, but you really walk through three key moments in your book. You talk about the 2016 election, the Women's March, the um, 2018 Blue Wave, and then everything surrounding the 2020 election. How did you settle on those moments in your book?
2: Well, I will be honest, the contours of the book kind of changed as things went along. I was consistently thrown curveballs. I never expected impeachment to come along, mm-hmm. for example, and I did— um, remain um, concerned for more reasons than one, that Trump might win, in which case this would be a very depressing book, not a book about uh, a success of democracy. But I think the facts really sort of dictated um, that. And because Trump did lose, um, thank goodness, in 2020, that just seemed to be the natural bookend. Um, And I do think 2018, likewise, was a turning point. Certainly in the book, I detailed the battles against the Trump administration, which were very important in 2017, whether it was the Muslim ban or the fight to save the Affordable Care Act. But 2018 was really proof that a organized, um, energetic, democratic grassroots force could combat the Trump movement and could respond to this mass insanity, mass political insanity, and could be successful. And so I think that obviously became kind of a tentpole um, for the, the middle part of the book, how that happened, who ran, how they won, what they did once they got there. But I think had they not prevailed in 2018, I think we would have been in a far, far worse position. And uh, Trump would have been unimpeded, frankly, uh, all the way to 2020. And when you think about it, after the failure of the Republicans to remove the Affordable Care Act, and after they passed um, this very expensive tax bill, um, which didn't uh, deliver that much um as a legislative matter, he really did nothing more. He, you can't point to any accomplishment of any merit. He was destructive in many ways, um, and he uh, did things to injure our democracy. But um, he essentially, on a legislative basis, was stopped in his tracks. And that was not a foregone conclusion. Um, in my book, I um, interview and spent a great deal of time learning from Nira Tandon, who was the head of the Center for American Progress is now part of the Biden administration. And she, I think, correctly saw that if they had lost the Affordable Care Act fight, that, and then in 2018, lost the midterms. Trump would have proceeded to rip up a good deal of the social network uh, the social safety net uh, network rather um, he wouldn't have stopped with the Affordable Care Act. Um, we would have seen major changes in um, domestic policy, and as we are seeing now is playing out, um, we are experiencing um, perhaps an earth shaking uh, change um, in Jurisprudence, thanks to the judges that he has appointed, um, and uh, we're going to find out just how big and how uh, important that is. That may be his most devastating legacy, um, depending upon just how radical this court turns out to be.
1: So let's let's look at that first moment that you highlight in your book, which is the 2016 election, which I like. So many others thought for sure Hillary Clinton would win, not only because she had the right experience and politics that I liked um, or policies that I liked, but also because her opponent was so very unqualified and had insulted one of the largest voting blocks in the country, which is women. And, you know, we saw it with the Access Hollywood tape and just in his general behavior, and then the accusations of so many women of sexual assault by him. So I want to ask you first, what do you think in 2016 made it possible for Donald Trump to win despite all that I've just laid out?
2: Yeah, it really was um, still a... Inconceivable fact to me, um, like you, Jill, that the country would have chosen this person over Hillary Clinton. Whatever her shortcomings, whatever her difficulties, she was at least fundamentally qualified to be president. She wasn't insane. Um, She was emotionally stable. (laughs) That's a pretty
1: low standard.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yes, exactly. Um, She had some familiarity with American history and American government. But it turned out that the country... Does not necessarily look at politics the way you and I do, Jill. Um, They don't necessarily look at the issues or look at competency. They, I think, have begun to view politics as sort of um, combat, that they look for their warrior, their champion. And there were a whole lot of people who saw in Donald Trump something um, that was going to stick the finger in the eye of um, people who they think had um, done them wrong in some respect. And that this emotional connection that he managed to make um, and the anger and fear and anxiety that he played into was sufficient to get him elected. And I think those of us who tend to think of politics in more rational, um, logical, linear terms, um, this person believes in X and therefore he's likely to do Y, um, were frankly taken aback by the notion that this um, guy had sort of rewritten the rules of who could be president and who should be president. And I think... um, Listen, Hillary Clinton did not run a perfect campaign, um, but you're right to phrase the question the way you did, Jill, which is how could it even have been this close? How could it have even been in the realm of possibility? And I think what we learned is that um, you have to make the case for democracy. Democrats have to be very um Engaged in how they characterize, I they truthfully characterize what they're up against. And then if they don't um, and they simply sit back relying on the good sense of the American people, which has gotten us this far, um, sometimes they're going to be disappointed and the country's going to be disappointed. Um, so it was a shock to me as well. Um, but I take some solace in thinking that, A lot of people who voted for him didn't think he was going to win either. And he didn't think he was going to win. And so all those people who were casting a protest vote turned out to be people who elected him president. That didn't work a second time, uh, but it did the first time around.
1: And and the first time around, do you think that he unleashed the anger or that he caused the anger, that his lies and his rhetoric caused it? Or did it just free people to... Uh, do things that would have previously been unthinkable?
2: I think there has always been a stratum of nativism, of xenophobia in American society. You can go back to the 1920s, the know-nothings, previous anti-immigration movements, Um, Father Coughlin and um, others during the uh, Depression who kind of played on people's angers and fears and prejudices. But... Trump had this unique ability to inflame and to cultivate this anger and to make it seem like it was not only socially acceptable, but that his people were virtuous, that they were the quote, real Americans, and the rest of us were alien or um, and not um, as uh, American as they were. And I think he took a electorate at a specific period of time And gave it fuel and impetus um, to really lash out at um, a country that um, was undergoing change in which people felt um, left behind or people people felt um, alienated. And he really perfected a style of politics that had never prevailed in America. We didn't have a Father Coughlin as president. We didn't have um, the George Wallace as president, Um, but now we did. So I think there was something there, obviously, but that he and then his followers were able to sustain that and to make that grow. And I think what is so deeply disturbing, Jill, at least for me, is that it has gotten even stronger since he's left office. Certainly I thought, well, it would have deflated a bit. Their great leader would lose and they would kind of go back to their normal existence. But we've seen the opposite that they've become in some sense crazier and more unhinged and more uh, attracted to violence and to these absurd lies. And um, some real damage has been done to the American national psyche and um it's going to be very hard to undo it in a short period of time. I think we're talking about a long term deprogramming, a long term uh, detoxification that's going to have to go on in America.
1: So let's go back to focus a little bit more on the women, because it struck me as inconceivable that after the Access Hollywood tapes, women would continue to support him. And I'm confirmed to some extent in that by the day after inauguration when millions of women across the U.S. and, in fact, across the world took to the streets to protest Trump in the Women's March, which I thought was a pretty significant moment for women and for the Democratic Party's strategy. But it seems to have faded out a little bit. Should there be something more? Will it have any lasting impact? What's, what's going on? What's now, your prediction? I think, good,
2: I think the good news is they created certain organizations and networks that have endured. You look at Indivisible, which is a nationwide yeah. movement, hundreds of thousands uh, of people, largely populated by women. About three quarters of the people who participate are women. That has endured. I think many of these networks of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 women that I speak about that were really created by ordinary voters reaching out to neighbors, reaching out to friends, those are still there. Um, What I worry about, however, is an exhaustion factor. We have spent four years and now five years. fighting against lunatics, um, which can be very enervating and very stressful. Um, Social media makes us all crazy and despondent. And then comes along the pandemic, which we know disproportionately impacted women who had the primary responsibilities for the household and for child uh, rearing in many cases, and put an additional strain on them. So, You would understand if people said, I've already given it the office. I want some peace and quiet. I just want to curl up and, you know, recover from all of this. The problem is that history doesn't take a holiday. Um, We're not um, allowed the luxury of simply seeding the field um, because it'll be occupied by these other people. So I do worry, Jill, that this sense of urgency that was there because you had Trump right in front of your nose um, may dwindle and people may either become disaffected or the memory fades and people convince themselves that the current crop of Republicans weren't as bad as Trump or are more trustworthy than Trump, whatever it may be. So I think the onus is going to be on Democrats and other champions of small d democracy to remind people what's at stake and to first of all, explain just how uh, obstructionist that Republicans have been, just how um, determined they are to seemingly spread suffering and um, economic turmoil, um, that they would uh, take the votes they have and refuse, for example, to vote for the debt extension, um, the debt ceiling extension. Um, it's, It's going to be up to Democrats to explain how, really ominous um, it would be um, to be ruled, be governed by these people again, and to really explain the stakes um, when you look to things like women's reproductive freedom, when you look to um, the continuing uh, sort of partisan hackery of uh, the courts. Um, The Supreme Court may be in very bad shape, but Biden has done a very good job right now because he's had a, at least 50 votes plus one in terms of appointing very diverse, very qualified federal judges. Um, I think he's exceeded my expectations in that regard. We've gotten people from all walks of life, um, women, uh, non-whites, um, People of various religions, people of various legal backgrounds. Um, we never, I think, have had so many public defenders and academics, um, in addition to prosecutors who are the normal, um, form the normal track for, um, for judgeships. So I think it's going to be up to uh, the rest of us to explain really what's at stake and that it's as vital now as it was in 2018 and it was in 2020 for people to remain engaged. Um, But it is a a constant worry for me.
0: So in 2018, Democrats won the House with not only more women turning up, but also more young, diverse women running for and winning um, elections. I guess, how much do you attribute Democrats win in 2018 to Donald Trump, or was it bound to happen because that's what usually happens during midterm elections?
2: I think it was a combination. I think the resistance at that point had, energized people, had galvanized people, and we saw it almost immediately. We saw it even in 2017 with the Virginia state elections. Now we've come full circle, and um, it's a different story. Um, And we saw it in the remarkable upset that um, Doug Jones pulled off in Alabama, of all places, a Democrat winning a uh, Senate seat. So there, I think this was in large part A reaction to Trump specifically and to the uh, emotional energy, the engagement, um, the anxiety, frankly, that people experienced and they realized they had to to stop this or at least put a brake on it. Um, And they were very successful in doing that in 2018.
0: Mm -hmm. So. In terms of the number of women who turn out to vote, um, how did that compare to past midterm elections?
2: Well, 2018 was an extraordinary turnout year. It was an extraordinary turnout for all voters, but also extraordinary for young voters, extraordinary for uh, Hispanics. Um, And um, you want to kind of capture that in a bottle and figure out um, how to repeat that. Um, As we know, in midterm elections, the electorate tends to be whiter and older. And that is generally bad for Democrats um, who draw from what they call uh, more occasional voters. Um, But I think what Stacey Abrams and others um, hopefully have taught us, and Beto O'Rourke as well, who's, I think, very effective in organizing, is that you have to uh, tend to those voters even between elections. You can't just come back to them a month before the election and say, kids, let's get out and vote. Uh, You have to keep them engaged and you have to maintain the um, level of interest in politics and the sense of responsibility for our own democracy. So I think um, we saw it again in 2020, which was by far the largest election we've ever had in terms of numbers and turnout. Also the cleanest election we've ever had, I think by any measure. Um, And um, I think that's why Republicans are so desperate to try to curtail the electorate. Um, They do not do well um, when um, these uh, occasional voters turn out. Um, And so they have gotten it into their heads that the way to prevail is to make it difficult for certain types of people to vote, and that's been their strategy. And uh, we uh, must rely, I think, on the United States Senate. I don't know if that reliance is well placed um, to see if there can be a legislative response. Uh, The Supreme Court has made it virtually impossible to have a judicial response Joe well knows and has written about and spoken about. So we have a serious um, disconnect now in our democracy where the electorate is not going to resemble the country as a whole. And that's very bad. That's the principle of democracy, that the country as a whole, to some degree, is reflected in the votes and in the people we elect. And when that doesn't happen, um, our democracy will cease to have legitimacy.
0: I think in 2018, we saw a perfect example of really diverse people getting elected. You know, some of the people who got elected included Deb Holland, AOC, uh, Sharice Davis, Ilhan Omar, um, and other trailblazers um, who made history. What do you think those victories indicated both about the state of the Democratic Party but also the Republican Party?
2: Well, I think two things happened. One, the Democratic Party itself diversified. Um, AOC is the perfect example of that. She beat a very established white male. And although she didn't flip a seat, what she showed is that the Democratic Party itself um, is becoming much more diverse and to an extent much more, um, I think, inviting to people who do not have a long career in politics for better or worse i think donald trump has been somewhat responsible for that he had no experience that's going from to one extreme but i think at least in 2018 what we saw not only from people like aoc but people from the more uh centrist wing of the republic of the democratic party was that people who never ran for office, figured out that they could do it. Now, they weren't running for president of the United States, but if you had a national security background, if you had had business experience, if you had been um, even active in your community, that you had kind of the basic skill set that was necessary to run for office, and they did. And I think 2018 did two things. One, it introduced a whole new class of moderate Democrats who are the ones that flipped those close seats um, and are now, I think, uh, have a target on their back for 2022. So they were able to actually shift from red to blue, but you also saw a change in the Democratic Party itself. And I think it's very important for the Democratic Party to continue to welcome in younger people and to give them then an upward path. Nancy Pelosi did something very smart with her class of 2018. She took a lot of those freshman women and she put them in charge of subcommittees. This had never been done before. Usually you have to get in line behind a whole bunch of other people. And what she saw was that it was very important to give women leadership roles, and in particular, to put them in positions where they were dealing with national security, because that really bolsters the resume for women. And I think um, that absolutely paid off. Deb Holland, as you say, um, was uh, the subcommittee uh, chairman on a um, natural resources committee and now is the uh, secretary of interior. Uh, someone like um, Abigail Spamberger, who had a background in the CIA, Um, again was um, put in charge of a subcommittee and she's continued to um, be really one of the rising stars in the Democratic Party. So I think it was this combination of recruiting people but then giving them an opportunity to shine that is a pattern that I hope continues in the Democratic Party because that's how you get new blood, that's how you keep the party refreshed and that's how you communicate, I think, to a younger electorate that this is a party that gets it that understands what's going on in America.
1: Let's take a quick look at 2020. And there were a lot of women running for president in the primary. Um, Of course, none of them made it to that. But we did end up with a vice presidential candidate. And you interviewed some of those female candidates for president. What did it show about the energy and the significance of women in that election? to have that many women running?
2: I think it was an absolute critical breakthrough. Um, Amy Klobuchar, who was one of the people that I interviewed, in fact, multiple times during that race, said uh, when they all walked out on the stage, she had this great feeling that there's more than one of us, um, that women uh, would, there would not be just a woman candidate and that women would enjoy the same luxury that men have, which is being individual candidates. Different views, different positions on the issue, different backgrounds, different strengths, different weaknesses. And so for the first time, it wasn't an oddity. There was no single person who became the epitome and the model for all women candidates. And that, I think, was an absolutely crucial breakthrough. And I would be surprised going forward, at least on the Democratic side, if we ever have a presidential field, at least when we don't have an incumbent president, that doesn't have um, more than one woman. Um, And I think that Um, kind of shift in perspective and expectation was very important. I do think, however, that the women who ran in 2020 um, had a burden that did not uh, fall on men. And that was this expectation, this desire that they had to nominate someone who was safe. Um, And safe often got translated into meaning a white male because those were the people who have been elected, um, with the exception of Barack Obama. And I think that, plus a conviction, I think wrongly, that Hillary Clinton lost because she was a woman, made it very difficult for these women to succeed as a presidential candidate. Now, I think that Assumption about Hillary was wrong. I think there were lots of reasons, including James Comey, why she lost in 2000, in 2016. But be that as it may, that was, I think, a burden that these women had to constantly overcome and constantly combat. And I could have written till I was blue in the face that safe um, doesn't mean necessarily white male, that there are all kinds of coalitions that make up an electoral majority in America. And the irony, of course, is that after Joe Biden got the nomination, he put Kamala Harris on there because she was going to energize the electorate and help create a large um, majority for him, which she did. So hopefully in the future, we will not have a situation in which um, the singular model of leadership that is white males becomes the standard by which everyone is judged. And I also hope that because we now have a model of a uh, vice president who performs at that level, that people's expectations for what leaders look like and hear and speak like um, and behave um, becomes a little bit more inclusive. And actually, we've now had a woman president for, what was it, 15 minutes or 20 minutes when Biden underwent his uh, colonoscopy. So we've already broken that barrier. But um, I, I am more confident now, certainly, that we will overcome that barrier than I was after 2016, where I really... Uh, was greatly concerned that uh, America was going to be kind of stuck in this pattern that, uh, frankly, every other Western country had managed to overcome. When you look around the world, there have been plenty of uh, women prime ministers, women presidents um, in the Western world.
1: It's so true, and I, I love what you said, because I really can relate to the burdens that women have to overcome that men don't. And Also, the fact that you could see on the stage so many women, and all the research shows that it takes a minimum of three on a corporate board for women to have the same impact that a single man does. And I think that's true in politics as well. Um, But even though none of them became the candidate, they did continue to have quite a bit of behind the scenes influence. Uh, Maybe let's just look at that a little bit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, people say, well, Biden didn't run on any of this stuff. In fact, he did run on all of this stuff. And a good deal of his platform um, was created by women for women. Um, And the heavy emphasis, for example, on freeing up uh, women to return to the workforce by subsidized childcare, improved senior care, a child tax credit, these were aimed at an electorate that was for Biden, primarily women, and women had worked on many of these policies. Many of these were taken whole cloth um, from Elizabeth Warren, from CAP, where New York Tanden uh, ran, uh, which she ran. And I think it was a response to the plethora of women candidates and a lot of the ideas that they put forth. Now, it may have been that COVID kind of increased their saliency because we saw the effect it had on the workplace. Um, But I think both in the convention and then in the policy choices that Biden have made, you really see the fingerprints of women all over it. And you see how influential they've been. And you look at the administration, how many women are now in cabinet positions. And this is an absolutely key point. When you had women candidates, you had women staffers, and when you have women staffers, those people are then in line to get jobs in the administration. And when they're in line to get jobs in the administration, they're going to move up. And that is the process of creating a path the way men have always had a path um, to get into government and to get into high elected office. So that has been something that's been very encouraging.
1: Thank you for that. I agree with that. And um, there are two questions that I want Victor to ask um, because we try to always include our intergenerational perspective here. And so, Victor, why don't you uh, take over here?
0: Yeah, so this is a... Two-part question. So first is, what advice do you have for women in my generation, how they can sustain um, the resistance to the growing threats to democracy? And then second, maybe just a little bit more personal and career advice. Um, We mentioned this at the beginning um, about why you transitioned from practicing law to journalism and what that taught you about career changes and flexibility.
2: Yeah. Let me take the second one first, because I think it's um, even more interesting. Um, You know, Chil has kind of done the the same thing. We start off as lawyers. You develop a whole certain skill set, aside from the knowledge of the law and the ability to read an opinion, the ability to understand the judicial process. It is great intellectual training. It teaches you to listen very carefully, to ask really good questions, to formulate an argument, to think about what the other side is going to come back with so you can anticipate arguments. Um, So although I know law school is difficult and now much, much, much more expensive than when I went there, it is good training for many other careers that you may find, whether it's in business or politics or journalism. And I think your generation, Victor, is much more open to the notion, um, it was less so in my generation, that you're going to have lots of careers. You're going to have lots of different things that you do. And I have never thought that it was a mistake or that I wasted time. Everything goes into the information bank. Everything goes into your collective store of experiences that you'll be able to recycle and pull out later in life. Um, And I think I wouldn't be uh, as um, successful as I am in journalism had I not been a lawyer. Um, I absolutely attribute um, a great deal of mine. I'm curious if Jill does too. I suspect she does. Um, And as far as politics and young women, I would say They have so much at stake. Um, You only need to look at the Supreme Court argument that's going to take place on the Mississippi abortion law on Wednesday of this week to see how much government affects your life, your life choices. Um, We have such monumental issues that face us, whether it's the survival of the planet and climate change, whether it's the preservation of a diverse democracy, a multiracial, a multiethnic democracy, um, that they have much to contribute and much to lose if our democracy goes by the wayside. And I would implore them not to throw up their hands in disgust and also not to substitute activism or active um, social media watching with real action. And I think the lesson that I saw in 2016 was that people after 2016, people got up off the couch. They went out, they talked to people, they met with people, they did things. And it's um, easy to rage from behind your computer or in front of your television screen. And it takes um, active uh, participation. And the one thing that does give me hope, Victor, is that, um, people of your generation are the most educated the most aware, um, the most globally connected of any generation in history. And um, sorry about handing you such a mess, but I have confidence that your generation will perhaps be better stewards um, of our democracy and our globe than we have been.
1: Thank you so much, Jennifer Rubin. I completely agree with what you just said. And definitely being a lawyer has allowed me to be a corporate executive as well as to be a nonprofit executive as well as a journalist. So although my undergraduate degree was also journalism. But thank you so much for being here. I hope our audience has enjoyed this as much as Victor and I have, and that they will follow us on either wherever they get their podcasts or on YouTube so that they don't miss any future episodes. And thank you again for being with us today.
2: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you both for having me.
0: Thank you so much.
1: So Victor, I loved our conversation with Jennifer. Uh, I particularly liked her discussion about incremental change because that feels comfortable to me as well. Um, And also, I liked her suggestion that we need to think about what's coming next for Republicans who used to be Republicans when Republican Party meant what she thought it meant, and whether they will become Democrats, will redefine and retake the Republican Party from Donald Trump, or whether they'll become independents or form a third party. What did you think?
0: I thought it was amazing. The part where she explained how she left the Republican Party and just her ideology was fascinating to me. It reminded me of... Especially when she talked about what the Republican Party is going to mean for young people, um, I read this book last year, and it was um, on called. It was called uh, Let Them Save Tweets, and it's basically on the three R's of how Republican parties change: resentment, rigging, um, racialization. And they've used those three things really, really well to transform the party. And it reminded me of what Jennifer said as to why the Republican Party now chooses violence over saving our democracy. And I think for young people across the country who are thinking about, you know, should I be a Republican or should I be a Democrat to really look hard at the Republican Party and what they're doing now um, to inform themselves on what the founding fathers wanted for both parties, I think is really important. And um, I think, you know, if there's a choice for young people right now, it clearly is um, the party that chooses democracy over one that chooses violence and fear and anger. And and so I thought that part was really interesting, but also I think just the career part, you know, she's had such an interesting career from law to journalism. She's an MSNBC contributor. Um, And and at the end, she kind of mentioned your experience um, going from law into corporate into uh, journalism. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that and how that kind of law degree has helped you navigate other fields, um, especially for my generation, who may be thinking about, you know, what they want to do after graduation.
1: So I think exactly what Jennifer said is true, which is that law school teaches you a way to think and solve problems. And that's a skill that you need whatever field you decide to pursue, whether it's medicine or engineering. And I've worked with both doctors and particularly with engineers when I was at Motorola. And I see how they approach solving problems. And it really is a similar thought process. And so it helps you. Um, The one thing that it doesn't help with is learning to write like a lawyer is not great for writing a Washington Post column Mm -hmm. or for speaking to a jury or for speaking to a television audience. Luckily, my undergraduate degree was journalism, and I try to write like my journalism training and think like my legal training. And I think it can open doors to so many different professions. Um, I, I also want to go back to something else Jennifer said, which, in des- and you've just commented on, was her description of the Republican Party today. So my advice to young people is pay attention to what it is now, not what it was in the past. It's not your father or mother's Republican Party anymore. It is something totally different and, I think, quite awful. It's not even a good adversary for the Democrats in terms of policies and uh, political action. So I think that's really important. I I loved our conversation. I hope that our audience did as much as we did and that you will give us a review wherever you listen to this podcast or if you watch it on YouTube. Please rate us. Uh, We love to see what you have to say. Make comments about what you think we could uh, have as subjects going forward. We love hearing from you. If you have questions, let us know. And um, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts so that you won't miss another episode. Thank you for being with us.